If you're looking for great Christian content, we want to encourage you to check out peachtreepress.org. Peachtree Press LLC offers digital products, journals, books, Bible study guides, sermon outlines, Christian blogs, and church notebooks for children and adults. Some products are also available as print on demand. Peachtree Press is a sponsor of this program and a partner in offering authentic Christian content. For more information, check out peachtreepress.org. Welcome back, rappers, to our fourth season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, please hit that subscribe button or follow us for content on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Also, check out our website at rayreynoldsrap.com for sermons, weekly blogs, books, study guides, and lots of free stuff. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's program. Hey friends, welcome back to the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. We are currently in a series on the book of Ezra. And so this particular series will last for 10 straight episodes and we'll do a summary of the book of Ezra and some commentary on the book. We'll also set up a new series after this that will be on the book of Nehemiah. So you'll get a chance to be able to see this part of history and also be able to see the application for us in the church today. We hope you enjoy it. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in uh, Ezra chapter 4, and I want to start by just recognizing the first five verses, and, uh, and then we will jump into the rest of the text. We're going to notice some of the successes uh, of uh, the kings, the Persian kings, and also their rivals at this time in chapter 4. Uh, I wanted to also mention as we start is this, and as with any growth, any congregation's growth, any individual growth, there are always obstacles. And it is amazing to me, being a Christian my whole life, that sometimes when things begin to, to go good and there's traction and you think, oh, this is going to be a great time, it's the devil will show up and throw a monkey wrench in it. And it happens all the time where things are going really, really good and you go, oh, I didn't see that. I was blindsided by it. And the devil has a way of doing that. Jesus is uh, preaching and teaching and doing miracles and it says that uh, you know, Jesus talks to Peter about being sifted like wheat by the devil. And of course, the devil enters Judas. Uh, a lot of strange things happening by the religious elite of Jesus's day. And so Ezra and Nehemiah in this time are also going to face some major obstacles. And this chapter introduces us to some of these rivals. It's almost like, you know, if you've ever watched a movie or if you've ever read a book, uh, there is a, a hero or a heroine and there's a villain. And the villains that are listed here are simply just doing what the devil is wanting them to do. Uh, and so sometimes we'll quickly point the finger at an individual when really we should point our finger at the devil. The devil's behind it. Uh, people can change. The devil does not. Uh, people are wicked, but they can turn to become righteous. Uh, the devil does not. He cannot. He will not. And so we'll see through this chapter some of the, some of the rivals. I didn't call them enemies but some of the rivals of the adversaries to the kings. So let's start here, beginning at chapter 4 and verse 1. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord, God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Ershadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. 
But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, You may do nothing with us to build the house of our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in the building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. We're going to see a succession here from each section of more and more people rising up against the king, which at this time is the Persian king, and also against the work of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice the very few first verses, because this this really paints the picture for the whole chapter. Where were these people just months prior, years prior, for 70 years that temple lies in ruins? Where have they been? Where are they at? Why haven't they come back to build the temple? You know why? Because it wasn't a priority. They had no desire to build back the temple. And I want you to notice what they said too. They say, Oh, we've been sacrificing to God all the time. We've been, offering, we've been offering up sacrifices to the God of Israel this whole time. And you know what I say to that? There's a very specific Greek word. It's called baloney, okay? Baloney. It's baloney. There was no way that they were doing what they said they were going to do because if they were, they would not have lived and dwelled in idolatry, which is where they've been. And so now... When things are good and things are starting to move in the right direction, here they show up with their shovels and their hammers going, all right, let's get to work. Now, I want us to pause and just kind of ask the question, if they're sincere, which I'm not sure that we can prove from the text that they are because of their next actions that take place later. If they're sincere, why does it, and notice it's not just Jerubal, it's not just Yeshua, it's all of the king's houses, or all the father's houses, all the leaders, all the elders of Israel say, no way, it's not going to happen. If they were sincere, don't you think that they would have let them help? If they knew that their motives were pure, don't you think they'd let them? I mean, you need help. You know, I'm not going to sit around and, and, and gripe if, if I've got a wall that's fallen down or my house is falling apart in the middle of a storm and you show up, I'm, I'm not asking for any, you know, uh, you know, specific credentials. In fact, sometimes when we had Sally, there were people coming through here. There was a guy showed up. I was out here serving breakfast with Joey Farrell. We're out here serving breakfast the day after Hurricane Sally. That next morning, we had a full day of, you know, kind of getting our bearing. And then the next day... We were out here serving, and this guy shows up in a beat-up old Silverado, and he rolls in, and he's got like a couple pipe fittings hanging out the back. He's got maybe three teeth in his head, and he says, I don't have a business card, but I work on roofs. And I said, well, good for you. And he said, can I leave you my number? And I said, well, how are you going to do that if you don't have a business card? And he's like, well, maybe I can find something to write it down on. So anyways, he wrote down his phone number, and he went on his way. Well, it wasn't long before somebody showed up here and said, if anybody comes here or anybody comes to any of your church members and says they work on roofs, get their information because some of them are scamming people out here. And I said, okay, I got a number (laughs) of a guy that's driving around here, was here earlier today. And so, you know, if I need something immediately, I may not ask questions. And when you don't ask questions, when you don't do your due diligence... Trouble comes. This is where the key is. 
Trust your elders. Trust your shepherds. These men, while it would have been great to have some helpers out there on the wall, these men that led the people knew for sure that their motives were not sincere. And so they said, no. There will be many times, maybe not many, but there'll be a few times, where things happen and we go, now, why did that happen? You have to trust your leaders. You need to know that they're making the best decision that they can with the information at that moment. And so at this time, they make the right decision because the latter part of the chapter says they hire counselors. Now, what do you think that word counselor means? Anybody? I don't think that they're, you know, licensed professional counselors. Anybody have an idea what that word counselor might in, give a reference to? Anybody? Yeah, they're agitators. They're calling them counselors to be nice. And what they are is basically people would come in and get information, and then they would leave. So they see themselves as mediators, but they're not mediating anything. It is very clear that their motives are to disrupt and to discourage the work of the Lord. And so it says, that the men decided, all of them said, absolutely not. It's not going to happen. Uh, compromise is something that they had already dealt with. If you remember, when God sent them into the promised land after the first exodus. Remember, Ezra is the second exodus. When he sent them into the promised land, they messed up. They messed up. Wouldn't go in. 40 years. That's a long time to wait. Now they've waited 70 years. Do you remember when they went into the promised land and finally Joshua goes in and uh, they start taking apart uh, regimes and knocking down walls and doing all these great victories to, to succeed in building the land? But there's one random story in Joshua where they make a compromise with their neighbors and they didn't get all the information first. Do you remember that story? The same thing here in Ezra. If they had went ahead and accepted aid and help from their neighbors, they would have been guilty of the same thing that Joshua was guilty of. That's why I believe Ezra and Nehemiah paint a picture of what revival should really look like. Uh, and remember earlier, all the mistakes they made in the first exodus, they're not making it here. You know, they're not, they're not coming out and saying, we want a king, we want a king. Oh, they learned from the first trip. I don't know, we're not going to have a king. They also crucified and killed their prophets. That's not happening right here. They need the prophets preaching and teaching the word. They're also making pacts with their enemies and making pacts with their neighbors. They have learned their lesson from the first exodus because they've had 70 years to think about all the mistakes that they made, and they learn from their mistakes. Now, it doesn't take them long before they're going to get themselves into trouble, obviously, but at this point, it looks really, really good. Compromise is difficult. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did y'all catch that? Did y'all catch that? They say, we worshiped your God. They didn't say our God. Uh, God will never be uh, ranked second or third or even tied for first. God is to be, all things are to be done and seeking him first. So they, they tell on themselves by using the wrong language. They didn't say our God, they said your God. 
Would the compromises have caused difficulty? Absolutely. And we'll see why coming up. Let's notice the next section, verses 6 through 16. So, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation, that is these guys that are against them, wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes also, Bishlam, uh, Mithridath, Ta- uh, Table, and the rest of the companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and that letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. Now, let me pause here and say what's really neat about Ezra is he's going to actually show it and read it and write it in Aramaic for us. Um, turn one page too far. I always hate that when I get stuck in between pages because then I, it feels like an eternity for a public speaker. All right, so the next verse, verse 18 says, uh, or verse 8, Rahum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in this fashion. From Rahum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of the companions' representatives of the Dinaites, the Afarshathites, yeah, that's good, the Terabalites, the people of Persia and Erech and Babylon and Shushan and Dehavites and the Elamites and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapher took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and all the remainder beyond the river and so, so forth. Here's the copy of the letter. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river and so forth, let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city, and are finishing its walls and repairing its foundations. Pause. Doesn't sound like they're for the building of this temple at all, does it? Doesn't sound like they're in favor with these people at all. Again, like I said earlier, trust your elders. Trust your shepherds. They knew that something was a foul here. Keep reading. Uh, let it be known, verse 13, that the king, to the king that in this city, if it's built... And the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Now, because we received support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces and that they have incited sedition within the city in former times, for which cause the city was destroyed. We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. So they say to the king, these guys are up to no good, and you can see it by their pattern of behavior. They were disruptive and rebellious before, They came in and destroyed kingdoms and killed kings. They even killed giants. And as you come now to this story, they say these same people, as soon as they start building these walls, they're going to build the same kind of nation that is against any kingdom. And they will come against you. They'll be rebellious to you. Now, I don't know whether these guys knew it or not, but they received funding from the Persian government to build all this stuff. 
And so I'm going to assume that maybe some of them knew that the king was fully invested in this endeavor. He had, he had granted them permission. He gave them papers with his signature and signet ring. And they knew that they had all the permissions to do whatever they needed to do to build the walls, to build the temple, to build the city back as much as they can like it was before. And so it's a lot of uh, frustration in these letters, but it's dripping with anger and vengeance. And I see no compromise. I see no mediation. So the, the elders knew, they knew when these guys came and said, we want to help, we want to help. Their mission was to do something destructive or in at the least case uh, to do it according to their own will and laws. And so the elders and these two men, one who served as a scribe, one who served as basically the priest, said, no way, it's not going to happen. So the king now is going to have to respond to this message. He also mentions here the royal archives. Anybody know what he's talking about? The royal archives? There's a story in Esther where the king is being read to from royal archives. That's interesting, isn't it? That means that the kings of, of Persia had a library of information. We think sometimes that people who lived 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years ago were you know, dragging their knuckles on the ground and hiding in caves and building fires with sticks and stones. That's not accurate. The Egyptians, in the time 2,000 to 3,000 years B.C., had steam-powered trains. They built giant pyramids that we still can't explain. These people were well informed and well educated. They had books after books after books. The probably the greatest tragedy uh, in history up until uh, around the coming of Christ and soon after was the destruction of the library of Alexandria. And all these scrolls were burned and all these books and records were burned. But thankfully there were people that came and copied those things. It's the scribes, you know, the scribble, the scribes, they're writing. So they had, they had written these records, and the Persians had their own library of Congress, if you will. So these men say, if you'll go check your records and cross-reference every time you see Jew or Israelite, you'll see nothing but trouble. These people have caused nothing but trouble to so many nations. What is their intention? What's their intention? To stop the work. What's wrong with that temple being built? What's that got to do with the Samaritans who live uh, across the way? In a little village nearby. What's that got to do with anything? Why, why would they be so upset about the building of the temple and the walls and the city? Anybody got a good reason? Anybody? Why do you think they were so against it? They're not just, they're not just quiet or compromising. or They're flat out, don't let this happen. Uh, I submit to you that probably one of the main core reasons is explained by Jesus in John chapter 4. The Samaritans, much like the Danites had before they were taken into captivity, the Samaritans, with the absence of the temple in Jerusalem, had created their own place of worship. It's called Mount Gerizim. You can cross-reference this in John 4. And the woman at the well actually challenges Jesus on this. She says, we worship God over here on this mount, and y'all worship him in Jerusalem because obviously the temple is going to be rebuilt. And so she asks him which is proper, and Jesus uh, lovingly teaches her the truth 
by saying, well, just to be quite honest, salvation is of the Jews. So where Jerusalem and the temple is is where you're supposed to be. But there's coming a time, he says, and now the time is, when it won't matter whether it's this mountain or that mountain, but worshiping in spirit and in truth. And then he says in verse 24, God is spirit. We must worship him in spirit and in truth. So this was a competition between the place where God used to be and now where they assume God now is. Does that make sense? I believe a lot of this has to do with the fact that the Samaritans stayed behind, they compromised, they intermarried, they did all the things that God told them not to do, but they had created for themselves a new religion that allowed it and said it was okay. The reason why this is parallel to what we're dealing with today is there's a lot of people, we talked about this in our class this morning, didn't we? There's a lot of people that in order to have God accept them, they will create new religions, they will create new churches, they will create new denominations that fit their mold. And that's what the Samaritans had done. You know, they had intermarried, God said not to do it, so we'll just set up a new place to worship. God says, my, my worship is in Jerusalem. Yeah, but Jerusalem's over there, the temple's broken, we're going to build a new one. And everything that God had told them to do, every command that had been given, they violated. But they had created for themselves a new religion, and their God, like Billy said, difference between your God, our God, is their God permitted these things. And so they had no problem with compromising. And so if the temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem, the Samaritans will feel guilty because they know it's going to be preached from that temple. And they know what the scribes are going to be preaching, the truth. They're going to be reading scripture. They don't want their people to feel violated because their rights are their rights and their church is their church. You know what I'm saying? Their little congregation is their congregation. Don't come in here and try to compete with us with your truth because we have our own truth over here and we have our own place of worship and we have our own God and he accepts us. The same thing still happened today. It still happens today. The competition uh, and instead of seeking, which what they're going to do in Ezra Let's just see, and I love the way Ezra does it. Let's just see what the book says. How about that, Samaritans? How about we just open up the Bible and we read what it says? And when they do, the people of Israel are convicted. Not a lot of Samaritans come over. They're not happy about the temple. They're not, not happy about the temple in Jesus' time. And so this is going to be a source of conflict for several hundred years. And I've been on a soapbox here a little bit. Any comments or questions or thoughts? Up to this point, do you kind of see why there's this underlying, competitive, frustrating part of the story? Steve, one of the things that I think about is when there is something that happens that is none of our business, it's none of our business. And the Bible teaches us, there's a couple times, Peter does it, James does it, love covers a multitude of sins. Love doesn't gossip. Love's not self-seeking. Love covers a multitude of sins. And if, if we begin to, we're going to expose everybody's problems and we're going to expose, we're going to tell everybody, we're going to gossip and say things about whatever we hear that information, we're going to share it with some of us. Love doesn't do that. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love is kind. You know, love, love is above reproach. And the church is to be serving the God of love. And one of the greatest virtues we can have, Paul says, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, is to have love. So if we are loving 
our goal is to fellowship, encourage, recognize that there are faults and mistakes, but we're going to grow through it. The Samaritans did not look at it that way. They wanted nothing but trouble, and they're going to be successful in that too. Uh, nothing but trouble. Uh, they're even going to have, in Nehemiah, some of them are going to come along the wall and make fun of what they're doing. Oh, I could do it better than that. The reason why we came up, this came up in class this morning is we were in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 10. And I, you'll hear me say this quite frequently, and that's okay. Some things need to be repeated for a reason. Some things need to be repeated for a reason. They need to be repeated for a reason. You with me? They need to be repeated. Okay, we got it, we got it. Sometimes people feel that the only way we can reach other people is to compromise truth in order to market, that was what we talked about today, to market a more culturally friendly, more uh, egocentric, more self-absorbed, self-centered, entertainment-style Christianity. And that may sell. That may sell today. Churches will compete. Oh, we were, I was, Missy and I were talking about this on the way uh, we're driving around today. There's one church that still calls themselves after a book that was printed in the 90s. They still call themselves that book. I, nobody even knows, you hadn't read that book, so most of you don't even know that book. But they have churches that have still called themselves by this book that was written over 20 years ago. So what does that mean? Well, they're not, they're not up to date anymore. They're going to have to change their name again because it's so far-fetched. It's so far from the, in hindsight, even though there may have been some good things about the book. And, and sometimes churches will, in an effort to reach people, instead of preaching and proclaiming the gospel and doing it with boldness and in love and ministering and doing evangelism, they feel like if they compromise and begin to offer entertainment, then that will draw people in. But there is a statement among church growth gurus that I have written a million times, and that is what draws them keeps them. I'm going to say that again to you. Repeat it with me. What draws them keeps them, okay? Uh, if I'm going to go out and catch catfish, anybody here getting big catfish fishing? Nobody? All right. There you go, Steve. All right, there we go. Do you know what kind of bait you have to use to catch catfish? Stink bait. It smells horrible, but it's so worth it if you like catfish. It's so worth it. Certain fish only like certain bait, and when you offer a certain bait to get a fish, they're going to expect to get that every time. And there will be times if we set up, let's say we try to do something for an entertainment or for some way to, uh, to generate more people coming in, you'll have to keep the momentum to keep people. Because eventually they'll go, and I'll just be quite honest, there, there are some churches, you know, even in our area, that have uh, very expensive uh, buildings. They have very, uh, very... Uh, large bands and all kinds of things. A lot of money goes into those things. But if you keep using entertainment to draw people, you have to keep doing it to keep people. What happens when the lead singer of the band says, I'm not singing anymore? You go, we got to go to new, long, we got to release. You know, the drummer quits, you know, the, the guitarist. You know, I, I know a church that they used the piano for years and the piano a uh, lady was out of town or something or was sick, and the organist wasn't there, and the preacher got up in the pulpit. This is, I, if I can find it, I'll, it's actually online, because he got, this is in the late 90s, he got in the pulpit, and he said, well, we don't have anybody to play any music today, so we're going to do it like the Church of Christ. 
and we're going to sing it a cappella, grab a songbook, and when he started singing, nobody could sing along. You know why? They hadn't sang. They had listened to the instruments, and if you're playing something this loud the entire time, you can't hear any singing. You don't know if people are singing out there or not, because so it's all about the, the, the aura and the awe of this you know, wall and all these things, and he tried to stop the song. He started a second song, and finally the pastor just said, you know what, Wait, this isn't working, so I'm just going to preach a little longer today. You know, there's some laughs. He probably was about the same amount of time as he normally was, but, um, but so it draws him, keeps him, and what we have to do, we, we want to do things that are exciting. We want to do things that are going to bring people in, but we cannot compromise the truth. It's, there, it's great to do activities. It's great to have all these opportunities and, and, and ministries and all that stuff, but we have to stay focused on the cross. We have to stay focused on that vision. Our vision is leading people to Jesus. And I watched a documentary a couple days ago. I, I, I'm, I probably, of all the things I watch, I probably watch documentaries more than anything. Big History Channel lover. That's why Dad and I get along so well. He, he's got that History Channel on all the time. He's watching dogfights from World War II over and over and over. But I, I love history, and so I was watching a documentary on Jim Baker. Some of you may remember him, a very famous uh, Pentecostal evangelist. And they were doing the documentary of when he had committed adultery and how he had to tell the church. And they showed the congregation when he got up, and he did this on live TV too, confessed his sin and said that he was sorry and he hurt his wife and his kids. He even calls out his son in the audience, you know, and they're all in tears. The whole congregation's in tears. And one of the things that was mentioned in the documentary is immediately donations plummeted, church attendance plummeted, uh, people began running, asking for help to, uh, for other religions. They're trying to leave the church, their church, if you want to call that, and then and go out here to other places. And the reason why those things happen is because sometimes we get attracted to a man or to a personality in the pulpit. And we should. One thing I love about being here is you know we, we got Brandon preaching uh, next week. Billy's going to be preaching here in just a couple weeks. Billy preached first Sunday this this month. Uh, we had uh, uh, Wayne Pruitt here Sunday night. We had uh, Mitch Henry here just a few weeks ago. That has not hurt our attendance one bit. That has not hurt our momentum as a congregation because we love to be together. And if there are enough men that can step up, we're going to have some leading devotionals on Wednesday night. It's great to have so many people involved, but if we get attracted to a personality and then the preacher leaves, I see this in North Alabama where a preacher will leave a church and he'll go 10 minutes down the road and a hundred members will go with him. And I'm not saying that, you know, they're, they don't love him. I'm sure they do, but we cannot become attracted to one person, you know, one preacher, one, you know, whatever, because that's what happens as we get involved and, and, and get um, interested in one particular thing. And Christianity is about putting Christ first. And so that we have to change. Uh, last little section here. Did we get to the questions? Did we even read 17 through 20? We did. Oh, yeah. All right. Because I was thinking, did we read the king's response? The king sent an answer, verse 17, to Rahum the commander, to Shimshai the scribe, to the rest of their companions who dwelt in Samaria, and to the remainder uh, behind the river, beyond the river. Peace and so forth. I love how they use so forth. That's great. It's our way of saying et cetera. 
If you notice, they said it in their letter twice, so the king uses their language back at them. That's really helpful. So, peace and so forth. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me, and I give the command, and a search has been made, and it was found that the city in former times has revolted against kings, and rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over the region beyond the river, and tax, tribute, and custom were paid to them. Now, give the command to make these men cease, that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the hurt of the kings, and specifically to himself and to the kingdom? So they succeed. He says, you know, basically the king is trying to play politics. He's saying, I don't want to lose the, the region beyond the river. I don't want these nations beyond the Jordan here, beyond this region, to, to uh, have any kind of civil war. So he says, here's what I'm going to do. I need you, first of all, don't ever send, when somebody complains, when you got a, how many, we have kids, right? You got more than one? When the kid comes to you and says, he took my toy, or she did such and such, don't ever tell the child, well, you go tell them I said, because you turn them into the authority. What the king should have done is sent a delegation to investigate. But the king does not do that. He just says, you know what, you go tell them to stop, because I have done a little bit of investigation. And when I say they can start again, they'll start again. So the king's made a a little bit of a mistake here, we would say. And the enemy, the rivals, get to go and tell him, hey, you need to stop construction immediately. Now, what specifically were they asking to stop? Did you notice that in the letter? They were asking to stop all the building of the city. What's in a city? Walls, stop. Temple, stop. Houses, stop. You don't think this is going to cause a conflict? The king thinks that probably the best thing to do right now is just to put the hammers away. But many of these people have started building their homes. They have started building their businesses that had been in the family for many years. They come in and they're trying to rebuild their shops and rebuild all their places of of work and employment. And they're busy building an infrastructure of their society. And the king just says, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to stop until I say. So the next few chapters, especially the next chapter, is going to show us through letters the response that Israel is going to give to the king. To say, hey, look, don't, we, we don't agree with this. This doesn't fairly represent us. Uh, one thing that we should have in a democratic society is the ability to have a voice. We should feel like, and that's one of the things we, we really pride ourselves on, is we can vote and we can have freedom of speech and we can ask questions and we can get answers and we have the media and journalism and so forth. Sometimes that does not work to our advantage. I would say probably most times it doesn't work to our advantage. But occasionally, on rare occasion, they will get it right. None of those things were taken in the political process here because this isn't a democracy. This is a monarchy. He's still in control. The king is still on the throne, and he does not want a rival king to be set up. There's no intention. I I mentioned the very first in chapter 1. Nowhere in this book are we going to see them going, okay, who's in line for the kingdom now? We talked about that this morning in class too, didn't we? A little point of contention. I can say this because it doesn't have anything to do with our country. 
But there is a uh, movement, kind of, it's not a quiet movement either, to restore the rightful king and queen to the throne in England. Uh, I gave a little bit of that background in class today, but um, there is a movement because there is the, one of the kings early on many years ago was actually the, uh, the child of a, uh, of, a, of a person in the kingdom that was not supposed to be there. And so that, for that, they can now trace back. And the, the rightful king, they've done all this documentary stuff, the rightful king is, is like a shop owner. And they're like, we need to restore you uh, to the kingdom. Uh, we don't have that kind of corruption today, do we? You know, we don't, people get into position. There's no, there's no government problem. There's no voter fraud, you know. Uh, there's no political agenda. And so what we're seeing here is what it will tell you. If you're a political junkie, if you're a, a political science person, you love Ezra. Because this is politics at its best. These people are going over there saying this, and these people are over here saying that. And King's just trying to find a way to keep everybody together. If you were the king, if you were the king of Persia, how would you have responded if you did not know the Samaritans and the Jews as we do? What would you have done any differently to these people when they complained? Do you always take the first person's word? Would you do an investigation? You ever heard of the Pony Express? All right. Talk about the U.S. mail, things like that. What, anybody know when the Pony Express was actually begin to be invented? Anybody know? Was it the 1840s? So just in the last 200 years, have we thought, you know what? Let's give our mail to the fastest horse and let him run. And when the mail gets there, then we'll let, send him back on a fresh horse and we'll get more mail. When, when we read these letters to Ezra, things don't happen like an email. So many times if they had to go by ship, at this time they're by land, but they went by ship, they would write a letter and there was a very good chance. And this has happened even during uh, World War II in Vietnam. I have known people personally that received the news that their loved one had died in battle and within the next week they got a letter from them because the mail was so slow that they write home and they say, hey, we're about to go into this battle. I can't say where and I can't say how, but just pray for me when they'd already been dead for five or six days. The mail, even in our lifetime, has been slow. We call it snail mail now. You can mail a letter to somebody one state over and it takes a week. So imagine in those days how long it would have taken these letters. Uh, now, what they're going to do next is they're going to actually write a letter of their own and say, is this true, king? Are you, you gave us full permission to come down here. And that's where Nehemiah is going to show up in the next book, is that he, as the cupbearer of the king, says, send me. I'll go. I want to go. And he weeps because he's so worried about the people that are there. Uh, any other thoughts before we move to the last section? All right, let's read these last two verses. So the next little section here shows the rivals of King Darius, who, again, is going to come up in chapter 5. And uh, it says here in verses 23 and 24, Now when the king of Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahim, Shimshai the scribe, and the companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem. I'll bet they did. Against the Jews, and by force of arms made them cease. Thus the work in the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
So this goes beyond, it's kind of like um, there was a law, I'm giving you kind of an example, Uh, in Florida, they passed a Tebow law, Tim Tebow law. Uh, The Tebow family was friends with a senator. Uh, Tim Tebow wanted to play high school football, and he was not allowed because if you homeschool, you're not allowed to be a part of the public school system in Florida. So they went to a senator, said he wants to play high school football. They made a new law. It's called the Tebow law. And beginning then, he was able to walk onto a football field there near where he lived, even though he was homeschooled, and he played football, and you know the rest of the story. So other states have passed the same law. Alabama has not. Every time that it is brought to the floor and they're about to bring it up, it falls dead every single time. One time I think it passed like the House, but didn't pass the other side of Congress. So this is where we are. State of Alabama, if you're homeschooled, you cannot play sports unless the superintendent uh, gets permission from the state, which they're not going to do. But their goal is to get you into the school system. So whenever there is a law that is to be passed, it goes through a process. This process was expedited because the king got involved. And the king said, here, I'm going to do this. I'm going to sign it. In other words, he had, he had an uh, uh, executive order to be able to show the power that we're going to stop this until I can get to it. Then the next king comes. Well, this is... Uh, and this is one of the things that just absolutely aggravates me, and I guess it's just the, the way that it's handled. But every time we get a new leader as president, what's the first thing they do? They sit at that desk and they write this, and I'm going to, first thing I do when I get into office, I'm going to undo the last four years. You know, And there are people going, yeah! And they sit down there with all their pens, and they sign one letter and take a pen and sign one letter and take another pen and sign one letter, and they do that for a hundred things. We're going to roll back to what we were doing four years ago or eight years ago. And so sometimes it takes a long time to rewrite or to replan something. In this case, it's the second year of Darius. So now another king has to get involved. So we have now here on your sheet, or you don't have the books with you. On the screen, you've seen four kings that have had to deal with this problem. And it's going to be a problem even after they build the temple. Uh, but in Darius, of course, there's a whole story with him, and there's a great history there we don't have time to get into. But these scribes and leaders were so excited when they got the news, they ran to Jerusalem shaking that paper and stopped it for a long, long time. Uh, let's put ourselves in their shoes. Thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube. Also, visit our website at rayreynoldsrap.com. If you'd like to contribute to the show, content suggestions, uh, questions, prayer requests, or even if you just want to reach out to us, you can email us at rayreynoldsrap at gmail.com. Have a great day as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible Correspondence Course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214.